This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Kate Mackay, who is the Associate Film Curator at Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive. She's also the curator of a retrospective of the films of Luis Buñuel, which run through November 19th. Most of the later films are available, if not all of the later films are available for rental through Apple or Amazon. The earlier ones, particularly the Mexican films, which we'll be talking about, are not. So before we start, I want to ask a couple of questions about Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive. How did things fare during the pandemic? How did you guys do financially? Was it a real horror? Did you adapt quickly to streaming? What was going on? I don't have that much relationship to the financial health of the organization, but I can say that our senior managers regrouped very quickly and we did adapt to streaming thanks to some amazing support staff very quickly and were able to also make some headway on some archival projects that we hadn't been able to really get a foothold on before. So we were very busy during the pandemic learning this new streaming environment, you know, really having an opportunity to speak with filmmakers remotely about their work where, you know, I did a Brazilian film series that was streaming and had amazing conversations with Brazilian filmmakers who we wouldn't have had the budget to bring to um, the film archive otherwise. So it was a great way to be introduced to a different world of uh, film watching and appreciation, but we're very, very happy to be back in the cinema and welcoming audiences in person now. And really, we've been, you know, doing gangbusters, especially uh, the audience has been a little bit slow to return, but really since January 2023, we've been really quite doing quite well. We've gotten a lot of new people in the building and um, some of our long, long-term members are coming back, especially for our appreciation of Tom Luddy, which is brilliantly curated by our director of film and senior film curator, Susan Oxtoby. Is any streaming left? We're not streaming any films anymore. We do have a YouTube page and we are doing some, some people that are not able to travel with the sort of skills we've developed. We've been able to um, have some pre-recorded introductions by different filmmakers and scholars and participants that we've been able to air before screenings or after or put online. Kate Mackay, let's talk about Bunuel. Why the decision now to do the retrospective? That's a really good question. A lot of people have been asking me that, and I was like, well, why? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, any time is a good time for Bunuel. I was thinking about this question this morning because I knew you were going to ask it, and I was thinking about long time ago when I was a projectionist at, a, at the Cinematheque Ontario in Toronto, 
I remember a Bunuel series coming up that I was going to project, and I remember thinking, oh, Bunuel again, you know, everyone knows who he is. He's this old pillar of cinema. Why does this matter? And as I was projecting the series and watching, re-watching his film, it was so marvelous to be in his headspace, in his world, to be appreciating his aesthetic over a number of screenings. There are some filmmakers for me who have such a skill at creating their own world, their own place, and pulling you into it and changing your own perception of the world. I think Robert Brisson is a master at this. A Pichapongwara Sethakung, who we had here in the spring, also creates this amazing space and almost takes you out of your body and into their world or, I mean, opens up your nerve endings to appreciate the world in a different kind of way. And I think that Buñuel is an absolute genius at opening your eyes to the world in a way that you would not see it without his view of it. I've seen in the recent past, or not so recent past, most of the recent films, the international films, Mm -hmm. the Mexican films, which are in the uh, retrospective, which happened a little bit later in the, I think, early fall, those Mexican films and some of the even earlier ones, we don't get to see much. And when I asked AJ, who is the media person at BAM PFA, when I asked him to send me over what you wanted to talk about, so AJ, send over some streamers. And he looked, he couldn't find any. They're not available. Before we go into a little of Bunuel's history, I want to focus right now on those Mexican films. There were like 18 of them over a two-decade period. Yeah. Okay, so he comes to Mexico, and we will go back and talk about his earlier life in a second, does these films and then, for various reasons, leaves. Two of them, according to Wikipedia, are considered masterpieces, and that's Los Olvidados, which A.J. did find in a very bad print on YouTube, and L, which is completely unavailable. So what is going on? Why are these films not being shown when Phantom of Liberty, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, Exterminating Angel can be found everywhere? I mean, it's really the vicissitudes of distribution and who has rights. And and I think that the Mexican films were not as well considered historically. I mean, aside from something like Los Olvidados, which was at the Cannes Film Festival, which was an award winner. But really, his time in Mexico, he was really, Bunuel is honing his skills. And really, these were industrial films. He was working, you know, as part of the studio system there, making melodramas, westerns, sort of genre pictures. These were not films that he had necessarily as much control over as the films that you see from, you know, the 1960s on in Europe where he's working with sympathetic producers. He was really honing his skills as a filmmaker, learning to make films on a budget, 
on a timeline. He was a very efficient filmmaker. Why these films didn't necessarily get picked up for international distribution, I think it's just that they were, you know, they were made a little bit longer time ago. They were made for a more of a local market. A lot of them didn't go really beyond Mexico, so they weren't part of his later films with Carrier. Have you seen those Mexican films, or is that something that you're going, hey, I'm looking forward to? No, I've seen a lot of the Mexican films tracked down through various screeners, or, you know, I've seen them in the past. There's a new restoration of L that was presented at the Bologna Film Festival a couple of years ago, and it's going to be released in the fall. So we're excited to have a brand new restoration of that. But that that is a film that has been, you know, shown here in the past. It's shown at Cinematex. And a lot of the Mexican films have been included in various retrospectives, but they're really only been available on prints. So there maybe isn't as much of a like a home video market for those so that that may explain why they're not as well known but i think they're really remarkable and i think they're a key to the quality of the later works seeing bunuel's facility with these studio genre melodramas when i went back to wikipedia and began reading about his life yeah i didn't know that much about it other than he worked on Chin on Delu, which I watched with a friend of mine in Hawaii who had never heard of the film and was grossed out by the very first sequence and then kind of going, what are we watching? This is like Dolly. And I said, no, this is Dolly. (laughs) (laughs) What I didn't realize is that Bunuel started out as part of a threesome, him and Salvador Dolly, and of all people, Garcia Lorca. Uh In thinking about that and then thinking about his later films, the ones we all know, do you see some kind of relationship in terms of, say, the poetry of Lorca and the weird surrealism of Dolly? Do you think that kind of fell into him kind of unconsciously? I don't think it was unconscious. I think he had an appreciation of the unconscious, obviously, and the dream world that was shared by, you know, Lorca and and Dali and really the surrealist group who who after they saw in Shenandalu adopted Bunuel and Dali as sort of honorary surrealists. They had, you know, Breton had already set out the Surrealist Manifesto, but the Surrealists were blown away by Unchen Andalou. It shocked even them. And then L'Age d'Or, the other collaboration that Bunuel made with Dali, just cemented him as the Surrealist filmmaker. I mean, there were, there were many people that made Surrealist films, but I think the most consistent and the legacy of Surrealist film is really really Bunuel. It belongs to Bunuel. Because, it, you you know, when you look at the later works, when you look at the, you know, discreet charm of the bourgeoisie or the Melky Way, that there's still incredible surrealist films. And I think that his appreciation for poetry, for the unconscious, for different ways of looking at the world, 
that was really there from a very young age, from when he and Lorca and Dali were all students together in Spain and Madrid. Kate Mackay lodged, or according to Wikipedia, that was the breakup of Dali and Bunuel because Dali was a fascist and Bunuel <laughs> was a communist. Another thing I didn't know, the reason Bunuel was alive is that he happened to be in Hollywood when Franco took over Spain. I mean, I knew that he left Spain during the the Spanish Civil War. He, I mean, he shot Land Without Bread just before the, the Spanish Civil War, and that is an incredible work. I feel like it's an important hinge in his career. It's only, his only documentary. The Republicans who controlled Spain at the time hated the film, but when Franco took over, and he was working for the Republican cause in Paris. They adopted it as a counter-fascist text. So it's interesting that this film that they hated, they ended up using against the government who took over. And then looking for work, I didn't, I didn't know that Buñuel was actually in Hollywood at the time that Franco took over, but he had fled and he did work in New York at the Museum of Modern Art, editing films for propaganda purposes. And he, you know, had a short stint in Hollywood, but he wasn't really interested in staying in Hollywood. And that's when he went to Mexico, when he learned he could actually go to Mexico and and make film. So the film that's Las Herdes, I looked at the list of films at Pacific Film Archive, and I saw something called Land Without Bread, and that is Las Herdes. While you call it a documentary, Wikipedia calls it a mockumentary. Can you go into that a little bit? Las Herdes, or Land Without Bread. The translation of the actual title is Land Without Bread. It's about the Las Herdes region in Spain, the mountainous, very harsh region. I'm still trying to make sense of, I think that calling it a mockumentary is not quite accurate. The tone is so strange and so hard to interpret. And it's really interesting to think about what Bunuel was trying to do. And I think what he was trying to do with the film was to shock shock Spain out of their bourgeois complacency, which he's doing with every film, Sure. to show how immoral it is that you have people suffering from malnutrition next door to churches that are filled with gilded artifacts and not so far from cosmopolitan cities where people are living very well. He's almost using this ironic distance to the documentary to also implicate the audience that's watching it in their own complacency. It's a very uncomfortable film to watch. I don't feel like he's making fun of the subjects that are in it. I don't feel like he's mocking the people of the village although they felt differently, some of them. I think that he's mocking the audience for the documentary who's consuming this in a way that he's saying, you know, you're sitting here in all your comfort 
and you're looking at the, these people suffering. So the mock for me is not of the subjects, but of the audience. What's interesting as you're talking and I'm thinking about this is suddenly I'm seeing flashes in my head of Simon of the Desert. I'm seeing flashes of Exterminating Angel and of Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie all going on at once. And suddenly we see the connection between the wealth of the church, the poverty of the peasantry, and I guess in a way the surrealism all at once. Mm-hmm. For me, when you look at La Certes or Land Without Bread is the first film he makes after the two collaborations with Dali. And you think of the wild juxtapositions and visions in those films. But I think when you come to Las Hurtas, he's saying, look at the juxtaposition between the wealth and poverty there is in the world. That is more surreal than anything we could imagine. And I think that the way he shows reality in Las Hurtas and also enhances it. A lot of Land Without Bread is actually staged, or he enhanced certain scenes. It's not a pure documentary. Which comes back to the comment about mockumentary, Mm -hmm. that it isn't quite what Mm -hmm. you think it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not quite what you think it is. And and really, at the time, documentary was a relatively young and unformed kind of filmmaking. So you had Robert Flaherty, who was also staging things. Documentary, ethnographic film was still trying to figure itself out. And I think Las Hurtas is an important step in that trying to figure out how you make a film. It sounds to me as if this is kind of a crux in Bunuel's work, but also a crux in another sense, because now we're looking at something which also resembles this is Spinal Tap. I mean, we're talking about a genre that didn't exist prior to Rob Reiner's film, and then you go back to 1933, and in a way, there it is. In a way, there it is. Although I think with a film like Spinal Tap, you're clearly making fun of this whole band movie, concert movie, you're making fun of the characters. I think actually in Land Without Bread, Bunuel is quite sympathetic to the characters. A couple of questions again about the Mexican films. Nazarene, just from the description, seems a lot like Simon of the Desert in its tone. And then when you look at Susana, you're looking at the forerunner of films like Viridiana or Tristana, or are you? Huh, maybe a little bit, although the character of Susanna is quite different than Viridiana. Susanna's really, you know, just a troublemaker. She's more like the character that Sylvia Pinal plays in Simon of the Desert, okay. who is the devil. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And who says that's her favorite role? (laughs) So in a way, she's she's sort of this destructive, erotic force, erotic, chaotic force, Susanna. Whereas in Verdiana, the Pinal character, the nun, you know, she stands for kind of order 
and the church and Christianity that's kind of self-deluding and also has within her, in spite of herself, the seeds of chaos, but she's trying to do right. She's not trying to do wrong. <laughs> it's just that the cards are stacked against her. After the Mexican, his Mexican sojourn, um, when he went to Europe, he couldn't come back. He did a couple of films in the States until they realized he was a communist. You make mention, or the BAM PFA booklet makes mention that The Young One, which is about a black jazz performer running from false rape charges, is his sole English language film. It's not because so is Robinson Crusoe, mm -hmm. which I began watching the other night until I had to shut it off because the print was so bad. In Robinson Crusoe, I didn't find too much of Bunuel except in a couple of dream sequences. Was this basically a film for hire? No, I think Robinson Crusoe was a project that he really wanted to make. I mean, he was very, he was interested in the text, he was interested in the story, and the possibilities around the character. We're not showing it because I couldn't find a print that was good enough. But the young one, we're very, very lucky to be showing a very special print from the Harvard Film Archive. It is an absolutely exquisite film, and I think decades ahead of its time in terms of the way it deals with race and America. It was actually made in Mexico, even though it's set in the Carolinas, and it's based on a story by Peter Matheson, the naturalist and, and writer. But Bunuel really expanded on the characters to create an even more twisted story than Matheson's original. I think it's a, an amazing... That's actually the last film that we'll be showing in November. Our series meets itself in the middle of the filmmaking as if it would loop around again because we, we start with Viridiana, which was 1961, and the young one was made in 1960. So oh, really? we kind of loop around. <laughs> so it, it, it could be considered part of that final phase of movies, even though we usually don't think of it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like it's, it's a sort of a step towards. So the English language films, those sort of international co-productions. He also had a, a French co-production that he made around the same time a couple of French co-productions actually that we weren't able to include that were made before he makes Fridiana in Spain. But then he goes back to Mexico to make Exterminating Angel because he couldn't, couldn't get the resources to make Exterminating Angel in London where he originally wanted to have it set. As we enter the modern era, I have to confess that last week I saw for the first time I you can slap me around, Belle du Jour. <laughs> it's both very straightforward and particularly at the end, but also here and there inside, very surrealist and has a soundtrack that cues you in ways that most movies do not. Talk a little about that and put it in the context of films that are more political, if you can. <laughs> I think that all... Bunuel's films are political. His surrealism was a, 
a moral and political surrealism. I think he was against what he thought middle-class morality was. He was against institutions of the state, and he was for freedom. And I think he's sorry, he's always interrogating the ways in which society oppresses and contains us. It's, it's interesting, his use of sound in films. Bunuel was deaf, which is really interesting to think about in the way he uses these sound cues. But the, I think with Belle du Jour, it's particularly beautiful the way he uses the bells to signal this break from the real world to the imagined world of our character, Severine. Also, that film has a very specific and unusual plot about, well, now it's famous, about a poor housewife who becomes a prostitute. Catherine Deneuve, in the first half of the film, has no affect. And I'm thinking, this is the worst Catherine Deneuve I've ever seen. And then the second half of the film, once she's in the brothel, she's a different character. Even though it's one person playing two ends, that sort of brings up using two actresses in obscure object, which brings it back to themes that keep repeating in different ways in all of Bunuel's films. I think that Catherine Deneuve's performance in Belle de Jour is absolutely brilliant. She is so amazing at maintaining this glossy, not gravitas, but this glossy, icy restraint and then but you see what's underneath this surface and it's just so so fantastic you can't really imagine anyone else in that role who's so contained and such a wonderful object but then to to get into the subjectivity when she stops being an object and how she's actually controlling the environment around her. Do you think then I'm mistaking in looking at Obscure Object and Belle du Jour together? Oh, I, do. I think that it enhances all the films to, to think about them in, in relationship to one another because I think Bunuel's project is pretty consistent, you know, right from the very beginning to to obscure object of desire. I mean, I think it, there are all kinds of different ways that one could interpret having two different actresses playing the same role. And I don't know, I mean, I don't really want to necessarily offer my own ideas about that because I feel like the audience, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who didn't notice this role was played by two different actors. Really? Yeah, I've, I mean, and I'm surprised because they, to me, these women look completely different. But I think you could say that Bunuel is saying something about the way this character, the way that the, the Fernando Ray character sees women. He's not seeing them at all. He's seeing a projection of his own desires. It doesn't really matter which brunette it is. They're all an object for him of desire and an object of desire that's infinitely frustrated. There's a quote from Bunuel going back to Chen Andalou when people were asking 
Well, what does it mean? Apparently, he and Dolly decided that there was nothing rational at all, that you couldn't try to figure out what it is. And I'm just wondering, is that as we're asking these questions, or as I'm asking you're trying to answer, are we maybe making a mistake to even try to find rationality here? I don't think the Surrealists were that interested in reason. I think they were interested in what was beyond reason, what was unreasonable. I mean, I think the Surrealists were thinking that rational thinking is what got us into the First World War. Rational thinking is what is creating this uh, extreme inequality. Rational thinking is what gets humanity in a whole lot of trouble. So maybe we need to have a little bit of irrationality. Maybe irrationality is the only thing that can save us. If reason is what murders many, many people, uh, maybe we need irrationality. The interesting correlation between exterminating Angel, where the guests can't leave the party, and discreet charm, of course, where the party leaves them in a way. Uh, you are familiar with Sondheim's final work, Square One. Act One was supposed to be Exterminating Angel, and that one had a reading, which means the music, and someone I interviewed was there and said it was phenomenal, Sondheim. Act Two was Discreet Charm. Ah. So he got the idea of putting them together, and he kept giving up because the complexity of some of his songs, which we see in other works, probably eluded him at the age of 89 or 90. But there's sufficient there that it's actually opening in the fall. Right. I did hear about this. I knew that, that Sondheim did have a Bunuel project. I didn't know that much about it. But I did hear from the Louis Bunuel Film Institute, who have the rights to some of the films that we're showing. And I was in communication with them, and they were like, oh, as a matter of fact, the Sondheim is going to open in the fall in New York. So that's very exciting. Those two films almost function as Act One and Act Two. So he actually hit on something. Have people talked about the correlation between those two films? Did sort of dinner scenes. There's also the twisted dinner scene in Phantom of Liberty where the dinner takes place in a small room out of the main room and everyone sits down to on toilets, on toilets <laughs> to <laughs> it just sort of flips flips the script of what we do in private and what we do together. So, you know, Bunuel, and then you think of the Last Supper scene in Viridiana. So there are all sorts of dinners in Bunuel and all sorts of ways in, in which, uh, you know, he, he revisits this theme. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that to think about um, exterminating Angel and Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie as bookends. My question concerns Simon of the Desert, a short film that I started watching and going, okay, this is obviously anti-church. And then at the end, there's an airplane. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out, 
is this, in a way, a view of religion and the church that has more in common with those early Dolly collaborations? I mean, it seems different from the others in that it's just this strange, strange film. It's also about sort of the the vanity of thinking that you can separate yourself from the world and leave and lead a pure and absolutely pure life. So this is the problem with Viridiana. This is the whole question all through the Milky Way, where he's taking from scripture and religion these episodes and and really showing how insane Christianity is to think that you can live in this absolutely pure, good, rational world. You can't ever separate yourself from the reality, from our fellow citizens, from the mess that the world is in. And I think, you know, this is why Bunuel is so important for us to see today, because it's not like we've done away with the problems that he was addressing in Land Without Bread. These problems still exist, and we still need tools to overcome our idea that our reason, so-called reason, can get us out of this mess. We, we need poetry and imagination as well as careful consideration and reason to help us solve the problems we have today. You've been listening to an interview with Kate Mackay, who is the associate film curator at Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archives, also the curator of a retrospective of the films of Luis Bunuel, which plays through November 19th. For more information about the films, you can go to BAMPFA, B-A-M-P-F-A dot org. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. 